0: All right, <laughs> welcome to the Merry Christmas Church family. My name is Zach, I'm one of the pastors here. I gotta ask, uh, who else had an iced coffee this morning? Come on now, okay, my hardcore New Englanders, I, I had to ask. Um, today we're gonna find ourselves in Matthew chapter two. If you have your Bible, you can open up there. I'm gonna start us off with with, with a question. What is it that, that spurns people to long life-changing journeys. And I'm talking travel, the kinds of journeys in which the outcome is actually quite uncertain. Our history is actually full of people that make these kinds of journeys. In fact, my own great grandparents in the 1940s got on a ship that sailed alongside the Queen Mary, came over from England. They and countless others gave up what they knew to come to an unknown place. They are not in that photo. That's just a stock photo that I found online. But they, like others, had some sense of where they were going, but no idea what to expect when they actually got there. One other example. In the 19th century, there was a huge push of people moving west in our nation. Thousands upon thousands packed everything that they had into a wagon, made their way across an arduous journey over the course of thousands of miles, and for anyone who grew up in the 90s, you'll recall a game designed to teach you a little bit about their travels that usually ended with this. (laughs) What stirs a person to make such a journey, to take such a risk, to put so much at stake, especially with so much unknown? Could it be opportunity, ambition, a better life for their family? What about a star? Today, as we open Matthew chapter two, we're gonna peer into, as we continue alongside this diva that we've been following, the dawn of redeeming grace, the visitors of Advent, the magi is who we're looking at today. And so we're gonna look at a little bit of background and three brief points that hopefully encourage and exhort us on this day as we reflect and meditate on what it means to celebrate the birth of Jesus and the coming of Jesus as well as glorify our savior. So Matthew chapter two is where we're gonna dive right in. Verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, first off, who are the wise men? You could also call it the magi who are these men? Well, depending on who you look up and where you're at in history, you can come across a few different definitions. We have they were a Persian caste of priests performing religious duties. At some point they were royal advisors, often consulted by kings based on their knowledge and skill sets. They were astrologers or astronomers dabbling in astrology that among the many fields of study, they found themselves entrenched and they were known to connect events of history to the stars. This was a group of men who, fun fact, the Eastern Church says there's 12 and the Western Church says there's three because there's three gifts. We don't exactly know how many there were, but this was a group of men who knew the stars well and well enough to tell that something on this particular day was different, that this particular time was different. Now you might think, how do they notice just one new star? Is just one new star. Kids, if you went outside tonight, you wouldn't be able to tell if there was a new star. However, adults, if you spent a lot of time in your garden, you'd notice if a friend planted a new tree or a new bush. You'd notice. If you spent enough time in a mirror, you would notice when God begins to gift your hair what we'll just call a silver lining, Okay? This was their life profession, and it was a big deal. Now, we're not sure exactly what they saw, but in terms of a little bit more background, this new star, what could it have been? Well, scientists have a few different guesses. Some think it was the converging of Jupiter and Saturn, which we know happened in 7 BC. That's a little too early for Jesus. Others think maybe it was a comet. Halley's comet went by in 12 BC. That's a little too early for Jesus. Though other comets could have been. Still others postulate a stellar explosion that could have happened. And this view was attractive because scientists found that one occurred for roughly two months in 5 BC. Which lines up really well with the birth of Jesus. But the truth is we just don't know. The Lord very well may have set a new star and the trajectory of its light in motion at that point. Because God can do that. But what we do know is that as they looked at it, apparently out of all of their research, as they saw this star and they wondered, what could this be? What could this point to? Why is this happening? Out of everything that they knew and everything they had studied, there was one explanation that made sense to th- these wise men from the East. And it made so much sense that it was worth them making a long trip. At the very least months, some have estimated years. Years. They may have had Numbers 24 in the back of their minds. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. That This star meant something to the people of Israel. And apparently this and other Hebrew promises were enough to go and make this journey. And so they make that journey to Jerusalem. They come to Herod. Herod's a sociopath. Herod did a lot of grand things as a king, but he was also known for taking out anyone who threatened his rule, including his own family. And so they come to Herod, they come to Jerusalem. And why of all places to Jerusalem? Why of all places do they find themselves in a palace? Well, let me ask you, where would you go to find a king? Where do you find a king promised by Our God, 1,500 years prior, in the verse we just read, a palace? Where do you find a king promised that would come and conquer evil, a home fit for royalty? Where do you find a king promised to rule Israel, as Micah 5 says, whose origins are from ancient times, a dwelling place equal in such stature and glory, no doubt. Not so much. We actually see Jesus do something here, that he's gonna do quite a bit over the course of his life and his ministry. Jesus defies expectations. We see Jesus did this before he was born in the virgin conception. We see it in his birth as he was laid in a manger. No one expected that. As a child, he puzzled older wise men in discussions at the temple. He defied expectations there. He defied expectations in his ministry, going to the sick people that everyone else fled from. Others went around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans. He went through it. He sat with sinners, prostitutes, broken, desperate, marginalized people. He provided help to his Roman oppressors. He washed the feet of the man who would betray him. He defied expectations. He defied expectations of his disciples in going to the cross as his disciples were waiting for him to conquer Rome but instead he came to conquer Satan's sin and death. He defied the expectations of Rome who put him on that cross because he didn't stay dead. The greatest and most influential movement in human history was catalyzed by the resurrection of this man, something only God can do. Jesus defies expectations. He wasn't found in a palace in Jerusalem. He would be found somewhere else. Some people here in this room see Jesus as no more than a mere man of ancient history rather than the God who came in love to redeem his creation. I would charge if that's you, if you give him the time, he will defy your expectations as well. Let's continue on in our story, verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. All right, He was disturbed because he didn't wanna lose the throne and everyone else was disturbed because of how disturbed and sociopathic he was. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes, the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet out of Micah five. And you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. Yeah, not so much. I don't think that's his plan. What I find so interesting about, about this next scene in the story is what happens and who ends up going because you have chief priests, you have scribes, you have the King Herod, you have these men who were surrounding the king who had studied the Old Testament. They knew the promises that God had made for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and they sent some random new guys from a far off land to go find him. Now let me just throw you a scenario. Kick kick this out to you for a moment. If your grandpa passed away and promised a large inheritance to you, but decided to play a bit of a game with it, all right, let's just say, and said it's going to be left for you, and you're going to be notified when it's the case, but I'm not going to tell you exactly when. Tell me, at any possible notice, at even the slightest possibility that it was left, I would bet that you would do whatever you can to get to it, and you wouldn't send a stranger to go try to find it for you. Our issue with the the scribes and with the priests and with the king, to paraphrase Sinclair Ferguson out of this devotional, is that knowing isn't the same as going. These are the people that knew the promises, these these are the people that knew the word, they were knowers and they weren't goers. Kids, they were knowers, they weren't goers. Knowing isn't the same as going. Now this is a problem that Jesus faced often as he defied the expectations of his people. We see that the ones most knowledgeable, the ones most studied had become the least sensitive to the mission, the life, the teaching of Christ in this world. We see that in his encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, knowing is not the same as going. This is a danger, Christians, I'm talking to Christians, right? This is a danger that we gotta guard against. That we not become a people so full of, that people full of knowledge who lose our sensitivity to the mission and teaching and life of Jesus in this world. Should we not be excited at even the prospect of joining in on the work of Christ in the lives of people and his mission? You see, he walked this earth, and Christ, he was looking for followers. He went up, and he said, come and follow me. It just doesn't help us, Christians, that the world has really cheapened that word follower, hasn't it? You can say, I follow Dave Ramsey, and still go into debt to buy your car and put Christmas on a credit card. You can say, I follow this minimalist online, and your house be full of clutter, all right? That's, that's my issue as well, by the way. You can say that you follow such and such nutritionists and eat like junk. Children, you might say you follow Daniel Tiger and still give your parents a lot of hassle when it's time to use the potty. We've cheapened that word follow. Knowing is not the same as going as it's put elsewhere. We do not wanna be those that hear and do not do. Now, learning a lot about God is not a bad thing, but when Jesus says, follow me, what he isn't saying, church, my son, go back to your mother. (laughs) What he isn't saying, church, is watch me from afar and do whatever you want. That's not what come and follow me means. He's not saying, watch me from afar and do what feels good. Watch me from afar and do what feels safe. Watch me from afar and do whatever makes you feel confident or comfortable. Watch me from afar and do whatever makes you feel beautiful. Watch me from afar and do whatever makes you feel hopeful. That's not what come and follow me means. To quote Sinclair Ferguson again in this book, he writes, it is possible to know the Bible well and yet to be tone deaf to its message. We don't want that to be us. When Jesus says, follow me, he means do as I do, live as I live, love as I love. And if you do that, Christians, you will find yourself often defying the world's expectations of you as well. James two says, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Knowing isn't the same as going. Christians, don't let knowledge desensitize you to the excitement of Christ's mission in this world and what he wants to do in your lives, in your marriages, in your homes. Finally, wrapping up our story, Matthew 2, verse nine. Final point, kids, you're doing great. I just wanna say, families, well done, okay? I know some of you got like a death grip on your kids. It's okay. We know there's a lot of kids in the room. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother and falling to their knees. They worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh, their journey coming to a climax. Gary mentioned last year on Christmas that they had set out to honor this king and when finally meeting him, this moment of climax as they they found themselves worshiping him. What do we draw away from this scene? My final point for us to contemplate is the worthiness of Jesus. And I just wanna point something out. Because the truth is, the Magi didn't know or fully understand the reason that this Jesus was worthy of their worship. They didn't get to look at his life. They didn't know about his death and resurrection. But as Christmas gets in full swing, we need to be reminded that as we celebrate the birth of our savior, that while they couldn't understand why he was worthy, we can. There are so many aspects of who Christ is and what he has done to give thanks for, but I do believe that Jesus is worthy of our worship, of our love, of our affection, of our devotion for so many reasons. Here's four. We're closing it out. Four things. Jesus is a promise-keeping, grace-giving, life-transforming, death-defeating king. That from the beginning, that sin and rebellion entered this world, God promised to send someone to fix it, to right the wrong, to right our wrongs. Promise after promise was made for hundreds of years. Lots of things in this world over-promised, under-delivered. Jesus never does. He came and he did what he said he was gonna do. He's a promise-keeping king. Two, he is a grace-giving king. There is no one too broken for Jesus. Too addicted for Jesus. There are none too great, none who have done too great a wrong that would disqualify you from the love of Jesus. Among his very own followers, apostles, were fishermen. Now we have contemporaries who wrote about fishermen during this time. We know it was a hard and rough job performed by hardened and crude men. The worst of our bad-mouthed sailors would have felt right at home among them. And yet Jesus approaches fishermen to say, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And to one of those fishermen, he says on you, I'm gonna build a church. He's a grace giving king. Three, he is a life transforming king. A woman meets him in adulterer and leaves him an evangelist. A Roman soldier puts him on a cross only to claim that he is surely the son of God. One of the earliest and greatest persecutors of the church meets Jesus to become the fiercest and most influential church planner, the first century and beyond. He is a life transforming king. Finally, he is a death defeating king. He died the death we deserve on the cross so that for those who were in Christ and who entrusted their lives to Christ, we might participate in that same victory over Satan, sin, and death. He paid our penalty that we might be purchased. On the cross, he was abandoned by his father that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. For those who are willing to call upon his name as, his, as their Lord and Savior. The Magi didn't know these things, church, but we do, and so we worship him. Jesus is a promise-keeping, grace-giving, life-transforming, death-defeating king, and he is worthy of our worship. Johnny, I'm gonna invite you and the band to come on up. I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna close by singing a little bit more, by worshiping our God a little bit more together on this wonderful occasion. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the family that you've given us in this room, Lord, for the spiritual family. I love the sounds and the noises that we get to hear, Lord, the cries of children. so fun seeing them up here reading the story. I pray, God, that as we celebrate tonight, as family, as biological family, as adopted family, as spiritual family, as we celebrate tomorrow, Lord, that... The truth of your word would linger in our hearts, that you are worthy of worship. May we not become too comfortable. May we not take these things for granted. God, we pray that you would be at the forefront of our minds and the forefront of our worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.